0: Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez says her Green New Deal will save the planet. In exchange, we just give up cars and airplanes and rebuild every structure in the
1: United States. If you are outside the United States, you might not recognize this voice, and I envy you for that. It's Tucker. Cuck- I mean Tucker Carlson. Um, I think I'm leaving that in because Cucker somehow suits him better, but Tucker is his name and making snarly faces is his game. That and and lying to people on TV. We will also, by the way, need to invent brand new forms of energy that science hasn't conceived of yet. How much will this cost? That's unclear. How will we pay for it? Unknown. We'll make this In this particular case, he's lying about the New Green Deal, which is a non-binding resolution that freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, also known as AOC, and veteran Senator Ed Markey unveiled last month. Contrary to what Carlson and his cohorts claim, the New Green Deal does not ban hamburgers or airplanes or even nuclear power, but it does recognize the reality of climate science, and it sets goals for reducing emissions and increasing carbon sinks. What caught my eye is the way the New Green Deal treats land use, which is something almost everyone else is ignoring. It's a little-known fact that the forests, farms, and fields of the United States are net carbon sinks, partly because our forests are still growing back after being chopped down in the 1800s. This means they absorb about 15% of the greenhouse gases that our factories emit. Think about that, 15%. This is the opposite of the situation in most of the world where farming and forestry generate almost 30% of greenhouse gases. In the United States again, our land systems are absorbing greenhouse gases. And here's another thing. As carbon dioxide increases, trees and other plants are getting fatter faster. So they're absorbing more carbon and more nitrogen, storing the carbon in tree trunks or infusing nitrogen into the soil. And there's always a but. As temperatures rise, these trees and other plants also die faster. Beetles reproduce more, eating the trees, while dryness leads to fires. We're in a desperate race to keep our farms and ecosystems healthy so they can help us offset the very phenomenon that is threatening them and us. That's why I was really excited to see that the new Green Deal resolution advocates, quote, removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and reducing pollution by restoring natural ecosystems through proven low-tech solutions that increase soil carbon storage, such as land preservation and afforestation, but also by working, quote, collectively with farmers and ranchers in the United States to remove pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from the agricultural sector, by investing in sustainable farming and land-use practices that increase soil health. These are exactly the kinds of natural climate solutions that can deliver more than one-third of the mitigation needed to meet the Paris Agreement's two-degree target, but which get just 3% of dedicated climate finance and 1% of media attention. A lot of NGOs are now calling nature the forgotten solution because most media are focused almost exclusively on technology but nature-based solutions are right there in the new green deal. Today's guest, Rihanna Gunright, helped draft the NGD. She doesn't work in government but is the policy director for a think tank called New Consensus. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. Anthropocene.
0: We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies.
1: Earth. We broke it. We own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how, technology, geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we hear how the people behind the New Green Deal aim to reduce that impact by helping land managers improve the way we take care of our forests, farms, and fields. I caught up to Rihanna Gunwright while I was in Washington, D.C. for a meeting of the Ecological Restoration Business Association, or ERBA, Ironically, I had to call her by phone because she was in Detroit and I was in a room at the National Press Club. There's a lot of background noise on my end because although I started out in a quiet room all by myself, workers started setting up a buffet in the area, so I moved into a side room that turned out to be really echoey, something I didn't realize until I started to edit the audio. Rihanna Gunn-Wright is a fascinating woman. She grew up in Englewood, which is a pretty rough part of Chicago. It's where Spike Lee filmed Chirac. I was actually born there, too, on the street that borders Englewood and a neighborhood called Chatham, but that was more than 50 years ago, before the steep urban decline of the 60s, 70s, and 80s wreaked havoc on that part of the city. Rihanna came along when the neighborhood was already on its back, and she went on to become a Rhodes Scholar. Then she developed an interest in public policy while studying at Yale. Last year, she acted as policy director for Abdul El-Sayed when he ran for governor of Michigan on a clean energy platform. She and I talked a bit about land use, although she makes it quite clear that's not her area of expertise. So we mostly talked about how the sausage gets made, how the new consensus came into existence, how they started working on the new Green Deal, how she expects it to evolve from here, and what she thinks about the role of markets, the role of the private sector and government in meeting the climate challenge. We started describing land use as the forgotten solution. So I was really excited to see it in the in the proposal, the, the New Green Deal proposal that AOC and Markey put out and also in your own explainer, but it's still getting, like, no attention in mainstream media. And I'm wondering if we could talk about how land use not only fits into the New Green Deal or into the strategy, but how it got there, how it evolved, what mechanisms you might be looking at. Yeah, a
0: little bit. I can't. I'm not an expert in land use at all, but it's something that we are working really hard to think about and in different ways because I think, like, in our thinking, we did an initial deep dive into decarbonization and pathways to decarbonization, and I think we ended up just probably through, like, some internal bias that has since been sort of, like, stamped out, uh, thinking a lot about technical solutions and about land use, but I don't think in a way that was as complex or thoughtful as we should have been, honestly. And so we're doing a bit of catch-up there to learn and to, and to hear more and to think about it in different ways, right? land use is such a complex issue. There's land use in agriculture, right, and farming, obviously. There's land use in terms of built environments, right, especially in urban settings, and a lot of discussions about the role of sort of more densely populated, you know, areas versus sort of our spread-out suburban uh, suburbanization. So uh, there's that element. And then, of course, there's the land use element, uh, when we're talking about, like, land lease and the fact that a lot of uh, drilling and extraction happens on public lands and doing so is, like, also often in violation of Indigenous treaties. So what does that look like? So I think we're, now that we've recognized that it's a blind spot, are working really hard to, one, ID experts, right, in these areas who, who can guide our thinking, really participate, really help uh, write the plan, and also connect that to some of the other projects that are proposed by the resolution um, and and to the general sort of systemic working and framework of, of a Green New Deal. Outreach continues, and we continually meet and talk to new folks on agriculture who have been helping us think through a lot of these things. I'm just so glad that we found them uh, and that people have been so forthcoming to talk to us about land use because it's so crucial and it is something that we absolutely cannot leave out and I'm just really glad that we learned about it uh, as quickly as we did. Yeah. Or to, not that we didn't know but to take it more seriously much more quickly right it's not a second tier issue that you sort of figure out after the technology you have to think about them at the same
1: time. Yeah. That's kind of the mistake that was made in the uh, in the UNFCCC was that land use and forestry especially was left out uh, of of the whole mechanism and it was because the focus was on reducing industrial emissions and there was almost a sense that that uh, if they focused too much on land use it would di- distract from you know from right. the whole uh, it's, it's it, and and I think it wasn't until 2006 it wasn't until they realized that that land use was an emission source. I think there was, there was this kind of yeah. fight because people were thinking, oh, you want to turn you know farms into sinks, but that's just having the farmers do the job that the factories should do. And then when they realized, mm-hmm. no, actually these farmers are emitting too, that became a big issue. So I can say it's really, really interesting. And so I, like, when I first read the New Green Deal, because I was, I was like, oh, my God, these guys are right on top of all this stuff. This is great. <laughs> so yeah, but it sounds like you're, yeah. you're also just exploring it too um
0: we are but yeah like carbon sinks come up we haven't really been able to have a conversation with the, about agriculture and, and carbon and emissions without carbon sinks coming up mm, they come up yeah. constantly right um and i think that's one of the really uh really interesting and great interventions of the green new deal is sort of widening the pie right
1: because mm-hmm.
0: that they're I think when there's scarce resources, there's a lot of competition of are we going to invest in this kind of carbon sequestration or this kind. And the fact is that high-tech and low-tech solutions c- can work alongside each other. And that becomes a much easier conversation to have when you're saying, like, hey, what we're going to do is put the entire might of the U.S. behind this and invest heavily. And so there's space for both of these things. We need all of it. We need it all. We need a
1: full court <laughs> press, yeah. I'm wondering if we could talk a bit about just to get some clarity on, because you've got the proposal, the formal proposal that AOC and, and Markey, uh have, have, have submitted. And mm-hmm. then we've got mm-hmm. the work that you've done, which I guess informed it. And then I read, I did read your, uh, your uh, summary, I guess, that you came up with in January. And I'm just not sure how it all fits together, because I don't want, I mean. Oh, uh, how
0: it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah, how, yeah. It came,
1: how this evolved, I guess the backstory I on this thing, because it's, and there's so many different yeah. the terms been around so long, too. There's even a Dutch version of the New Green Deal. So,
0: Right. Yeah, I was talking to someone, and they were like, I think it first started maybe in 97 in Germany. Um, I think the most present antecedent for us before we started, of course, was 2008. Britain put out a Green New Deal. Uh, I think it's 2008 or 2009. Um, and a, a, a group of economists there, I think, actually, um, let it. I forget the 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 think tank is IPPR. I can't remember the full name.
1: IPPR is the Institute for Public Policy Research. They're a progressive think tank that publishes reports around issues that the UK's Labour Party is working on. They've been around since 1988, and Bionic Planet has only been around since 2016. As you may have noticed, I produce these episodes sporadically because I do so in my spare time, but I'm committed to giving you more of them, and you can help me do that by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet, that's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com, forward slash Bionic Planet B-I-O-N-I-C-P-L-A-N-E-T, so Bionic Planet no dots or dashes, and become a patron for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. Finally, you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher, namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end, and that adds up. Getting back to my interview with Rihanna Gun Wright, we shifted a bit from discussing the New Green Deal to discussing her organization New Consensus.
0: New Consensus was actually not started to work on the Green New Deal, but was actually started to advance this like new consensus that was emerging at least around non heterodox economists, um, who were essentially saying like, hey, uh, neoliberalism as an economic system is not working. Um, here are some other models, like here's what, here is, here are models that are sort of more based in industrial policy and that take the role of the state more seriously and explore what does it mean, uh, for states to really be partners in the economy, to be taking markets seriously and taking their role in markets shaping markets seriously and directing innovation. And so it was actually started um, to sort of advance those ideas and try to see if you could take some of those ideas and work with progressive economists, you know, other progressive economists stateside largely, although we do like some international consultation too. There's some super great economists in the UK that we have that have advised us. But how do you take all of that and sort of help form a progressive economic worldview, right? Because one of the issues that sometimes pops up on the left is that there isn't sort of a common language or analysis of what's wrong with the economy, how to talk about it, and how to really talk about what is the vision for an economy that works. So New Consensus was founded by some of the founders of Justice Democrats and, um, like, members of the initial cohort. Mm -hmm.
1: Justice Democrats is a Progressive Political Action Committee, or PAC, that was founded in 2017 by Kyle Kolinsky of Secular Talk and Ching Uygar of The Young Turks, together with some of the Bernie Sanders people. Uygar, who is an outspoken liberal these days, used to be a Republican and he was forced out after some of his old writings surfaced. Kalinski then left in protest, but Justice Democrats continued. They endorsed 79 candidates in the 2018 elections, and 26 of them won. Among them is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Neither Uyghur nor Kalinsky were involved in the creation of New Consensus. So the
0: two founders of New Consensus were finding that uh, some of these Progressive, especially J.D. endorsed candidates, where they had won their primaries, they were looking like they were going to win their generals, and they wanted to move on some of these big progressive policies that they had introduced in their runs, and they wanted to put real sort of policy meat and teeth and muscle on them. But when they were going to traditional think tanks, um, what they were being met with was this is a great aspiration, but it's not politically feasible. Right, so people were asking them to sort of water down their proposals or telling them that they were too ambitious and they were struggling, I think, to find a space that was going to take the idea seriously and and work on them without trying to water them down in any, you know, particular way. And so since I think the idea was, you know, this other New Consensus was already being formed, so could it do that work too? Could it just become a policy shop? We knew that there was interest in a Green New Deal uh, and that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had run on it, so uh, it became the first project at New Consensus. They brought me on to help work on it, uh, and we did like basically a four-month, deep dive into, like, passive decarbonization, how could you design them so that equity was at the center, and just really working on scoping the Green New Deal and, like, what sort of projects, right? If you were to do – actually deeply decarbonize, what kind of – not just policies would you need, but what what kind of work would need to be done, right? Because if you're taking an industrial policy perspective, really what you're interested in is what work needs to be done what industries need to be invested in and what kind of innovations do we want to promote, right? And along with that is to have also have a strong industrial society. You also have to have, like, essentially a strong safety net, some like, strong union protections, right? Like, there's a certain, um, I think, uh, base level of cohesion, like economic cohesion and equity that need to be in place for industrial society, and this is just my opinion, to really work well. And so... Um, so we did that work and so that work sort of informed, particularly the first version of the resolution that was calling for, um, a select committee to plan a green new deal. And then other bits of it also informed the second resolution. I think what sometimes gets lost is that the resolution is not a bill. The right. resolution is a marker. Yeah. It sets out high level goals, high level projects. And the goal is to sort of create a floor, right? Um, if you are going to have a Green New Deal, it has to include these things. Because what was happening is that as a term was sort of gaining prominence and people were getting interested, people were using it to mean a wide variety of things. I think there was really some great political savvy from the staff in AOC's office and the Sunrise Movement um, and some other allies to recognize that, hey, this thing could have real teeth, But if we and we want everyone to come come up with their solutions and to present a vision of this, but we want to make sure that all, if you're going to call it a Green New Deal, it has to respond to climate change on scale, speed, and scope required, and it also has to approach the problem in, you know, in these ways and have these three goals. Well, there's five goals, but three at the center really, which is a net zero emissions economy, creating, right, millions of, of jobs and high quality jobs, and then Um, equity, right? Keeping equity and justice at the center and especially protecting and empowering frontline communities who have for a long time, right, uh, been sacrificing their bodies and their health uh, and sometimes their lives unwillingly, uh, usually, for our dependence on fossil fuels. So we cannot ask them to shoulder this next transition. It's immoral and it's unconscionable. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and and also recognizing that past mobilizations, right, have also tended to leave certain groups out, and so if you are going to actually have equitable outcomes, you have to plan for them, right? They don't happen on accident. Equity is not a byproduct,
1: right? mm-hmm, like mm-hmm.
0: It's, a, it's the goal, not a byproduct.
1: Right, right. Um,
0: so, and so we wanted to put those, I mean, well, we, but, you know, folks involved in advancing this wanted to put those uh, stakes in the ground, and so that's what the resolution is. But the resolution does not have policy, right? And so the role that new consensus plays is essentially developing that policy, going from these high-level goals to how does it actually get done. And then we use what we come up with to advise uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, right, uh, Senator Markey's office, the various allies that are involved in this fight. So in a lot of ways, uh, we play the role that the Select Committee for a Green New Deal would have played, right? In terms of figuring out how how it will be done. Now, obviously, we don't have all the resources. I can't call up <laughs> BLS and be like, "Tell me all of the <laughs> all of the employment numbers forever." And so, what we come up with will be different than what they could have come up with because they would, you know, had more capacity. But still, it will be a really strong, workable. A clear plan for how a Green New Deal could get done, um, and while keeping in mind all of the goals, hitting the projects, um, and building towards a more just, equitable, and sustainable economy, which I think is the overall goal of the Green New Deal. Yeah, like, if you had to wrap it up in a ball,
1: that makes perfect sense. So now I understand. So basically, you know, the 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 the, the resolution. And and again, I I've also found myself falling into this, looking at it like a negotiating text in the climate talks, yeah. and then going, wait, no, it's not what it is. It's a it's a high level resolution, but it's it's it, and it's an aspirational. It's you know it's it's a goal, but it also is so well thought out, and it has so many details that it starts to read like a real, like a draft text yeah. in, a, in a climate treaty or something.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So and that that's uh, purposeful, and they did like a really great job on the resolution. I think that it's super lovely and just like w- great. It's a really great first step. Um, but that's that's exactly what it is—a first step. And I think the other really big thing that people sort of miss out is on, especially when. Uh, when they're sort of pushing for more details is that the resolution actually mandates that the Green New Deal has to be um, developed in democratic and participatory processes, right? Because it is an economy-wide transformation that will disrupt millions of people, everyone's life in, you know, in in some way, um, and that everyone should participate in. And so I think that's, sort of another departure for a Green New Deal, which is, um, there's also a really, another reason beyond it being high-level goals is a recognition, I think, from the very beginning that this has to be developed collectively, and we have to leave a space for that, and even if you do consultation after you have decided the policy, you're not really giving people all the space that they deserve, because you still have made a lot of decisions Without
1: consulting them or talking to them. Okay, you know maybe with with that in mind, I, as I did have specific policy questions, and, since you yeah. guys are, and and so maybe you can ask it. And if you're saying, you know what, you're now you're going way too detailed, <laughs> um, because yeah. and, and one of them there's a couple of things in your in your paper. I just wanted to ask about because you, you you talked about yeah, this, sure. you know, the pushing back against the whole uh, neoliberal agenda, and I totally agree with that. I think, you know, I, I call them I call them pure free market fundamentalists, people who think that the market is going yeah. to solve everything um, and without government controls. But at the same time, you know, as you can tell by the name of our publication, Ecosystem Marketplace, we look at, we do look at market-based solutions to these, right. these problems. I'm actually talking to you from the Ecological Restoration Business Association meeting. So there's, you know, these are mitigation bankers and people like that. And, you know, the, the, the thing is I don't think anybody in this sector ever believed that f- pure free markets were gonna solve anything. I noticed while editing this that it sounds there like I'm speaking on behalf of the Ecological Restoration Business Association, or ERBA, but I am not. I was there to cover the event, and I don't speak for them. I'm expressing my own views on the restoration economy and specifically on mitigation banking, which is something I'll be covering in more detail in my next episode, drawing on material from the ERBA event. If you listened to episode 42, you know a little bit about mitigation banking. And you'll learn more in episodes 45 and 46. The gist, however, is this. In the United States, any real estate development that impacts a federal water system or the habitat of endangered species has to be approved by regulators. And approval is only granted if the developer first shows that the project won't damage the environment. And then, if there is damage, the developer has to show... That he, she, or it will fix an area of equal or greater environmental value. That's the law. But how do you meet the law? Well, over the past 50 years, through trial and error, a system of conservation banking has emerged as the most efficient way of meeting the regulatory requirement. In this system, which again I covered in episode 42, and will cover more in episodes 45 and 46, green entrepreneurs will go out looking for marginal or degraded land, and then they will restore it to a stable state, that performs ecosystem services controlling floods, purifying water, or providing habitat for endangered species. These conservation banks make money by selling credits to entities, public or private, that need to offset their environmental impacts on wetlands, streams, or habitat. It's part of a $25 billion per year restoration economy that directly employs 126,000 people and supports about 100,000 other jobs. That's more than logging, more than coal mining, and even more than iron and steel mills. In a couple of weeks, I'll be heading down to Kentucky to meet with some former coal miners who now work in the restoration economy. But first, back to my chat with Rihanna wright We pick up with me pontificating on the value of the restoration economy. It works fairly well, but it's not pure free market. It's a. It's basically, it's... It's a system that evolved because it it, 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 de- it delivered the environmental benefits that that regulators wanted and that environmentalists wanted and it delivered them at a cost that made the, the companies happy. So it kind of was a compromise. It's far from perfect, but it works fairly well. And I'm just I guess my question would be is that is that something that you you yeah, yeah,
0: no. That is something that that I think sounds Great and makes sense. I, the first thing I think of in that se- instance is hot spotting. Like, how do you make sure that um, the the degradation is not happening in one area, which is you know, which is a huge issue uh, for frontline communities, or isn't clustered around one area? So that's what I think about. But in general, that it's really interesting because I think because the Green New Deal includes um, such a strong Emphasis actually on on social safety net provisions, right, like Medicare for all or jobs guarantee, but also actually in the there are also employment policies, right, um, and that are necessary, um, or at least at the very least incredibly useful. But I mean, in, in my view, they're necessary for a successful sort of large scale national mobilization, like we're talking about. Um, but even sort of moving out from that. So people think about that and they just go, "Oh, okay. Well, this is entirely public investment." But if you actually think about the things that we're talking about, like World War II as a model, um, or read the economists like that that are on our reading list, what you actually see is that it, at New Consensus and I think in the larger Green New Deal, like we take markets very seriously, right? We think that markets have a role. The the issue is that instead of saying that they have their job is to solve all problems we're saying, like, let's take a really thoughtful stance. Like, where are markets? Where is competition and free markets? Where is that most useful, right? Like, what kind of innovation do we want them to drive, right? How, what are the guardrails that we want them to operate within, right, when market mechanisms are useful? And where are the places where um, you could have a combination of market mechanisms and public investment? Uh, where are the places where you have private-public par- private- partnerships Um, And then where are the places where you really want the public sector to take the lead and the issue is like the public sector just say has to uh, provide investment or whatnot. But we think about market mechanisms, everything in the Green New Deal, we're very much at the ground floor. Everything is an open question. So market mechanisms are definitely off not off the table, but I think even on the new consensus end, we think about markets a lot, right, and the the role of market mechanisms and which ones would be helpful. And so I think people actually assume that we don't care or think about them, but it's it's quite the opposite, but I think it's still an intervention in lots of ways because what we, our stance is that markets are important, right? We take them very seriously. Like I said, we're thinking of how, how or, what are the best ways to sort of shape this, but we also say that, like, markets will not solve everything and the public sector has a role, which in this moment is, 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 is an intervention uh, that some people find, like, quite shocking, um, but seems like a
1: pretty reasonable position to us. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, no. I mean I, I always say markets yeah. are markets are like a fire and uh government is like the the oven, you know, or, or the engine, you know. You if you put fire into an engine, you can get something good out of it. If you put fire into a a dry forest, you're going to have a disaster. So it, need, it really depends on if if you have any kind of a market mechanism without regulation and controls is is just a mess. And uh yeah. So yeah, I think
0: Exactly. Uh, yeah so so we we think about that that often and also like let's be honest the market is great for lots of things but if you are talking about issues of justice or equity the record you know the track record is much more spotty right because also if you're talking about a market a market is looks at a worker as a worker right um and not the not the you know not they don't it doesn't necessarily care about uh, the worker's, like, socioeconomic status. And the fact is that, like, if you're talking about labor costs, like, you want labor that's, like, re- often if, if you're thinking from, like, a profit side, you want labor that requires, like, minimal training, right, that uh, has the skills that you need, et cetera, et cetera. And we know that the society that we have has made those hurdles, you know, those things that you might look for more difficult for some people. So some people are just more expensive, not to necessarily employ, but um, if you're looking at, you know, who do I want for this job and and who will be easier, right, it's easy to keep picking the same type of person. Um, And the market is not going to solve it, right? There's no, what are the mechanisms, unless, again, unless the government puts them in place, those regulations, like, and that's where you get local hiring, you know, ordinances, you have to, if you work here, you have to, we have one in Detroit, you have hire a certain percentage of Detroiters, right? That's where you, you you see those sorts of things. But, again, you have those sorts of things because the market did not solve that problem on its own, right? Uh, you needed equity. You needed to reduce income. You need, you need to reduce inequality. You needed to make these jobs available. And so that is a role that often uniquely government can play because unless you have a market actor that is sort of intrinsically, either it helps their bottom line or they just care about it, right, which happens all the time, they're not going to sort of make the choices that we will want them to make.
1: Rihanna Gunwright of New Consensus, wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet. I hope you're having a good St. Patrick's Day, by the way. I blew off the fun to create this episode, and I hope you appreciate that, too. I know my liver does. If you like Bionic Planet and you want more episodes, be sure to give me a good review on whichever podcatcher you use, or become a patron at Bionic-Planet.com, where you can support me for as little as $1 per month. That's Bionic-Planet.com or Patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. Till next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.